We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Perhaps America's greatest soldier fought during World War II. Now it's been said, though it can't be confirmed as fact, that he single-handedly stopped more Nazi espionage on American soil than any soldier before him combined. His name was Steve Rogers, and he was a part of the 1st Infantry Division's 26th Infantry Regiment, also known as the Blue Spader. Now, what enabled Rogers to become America's greatest soldier was not that he possessed all the elite qualities the other soldiers possessed. He was not the biggest, he was not the fastest, he was not the strongest, he was not the most intelligent. On the contrary, he was undersized, he was frail, he was sickly. In fact, he was the visible representation of everything an elite soldier was not. However, he was given a chance because of his patriotism, his love of country, his love of truth, and his pursuit of justice. But the final nail in the coffin that enabled him to become America's greatest soldier was when he was the only soldier to dive upon an activated grenade to shield its blast with his body. When all the other soldiers bailed out, the bigger, the faster, the stronger soldiers bailed out, Rogers went in. And it was a test. The grenade was a dummy. It was Steve Rogers' character that enabled him to become Captain America. It wasn't his physical attributes. It wasn't his level of intelligence. It was something else. Likewise, in the kingdom of God, that which enables us to be used mightily by God is something else. What is that something else? While all the world bails out and runs after being the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, the best looking, the most influential, the wealthiest, the most intelligent, as the primary means of enablement in getting ahead in life, what is it that enables the Christian to be used in the kingdom of God? It's something else. What is that something else? Well, today in Genesis chapter 39, we continue the Joseph story. And in chapter 39, we're gonna see a facet of what enables us as God's agents of blessing, to become agents of blessing. It's something else. Now, in case you weren't here last Sunday or you already forgot, broadly speaking, Genesis is a book about divine blessing. We see God creating, blessing creation. We see God creating Adam and Eve and then blessing Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve reject God's blessing But God doesn't abandon mankind. He chooses Abraham through whom his seed, in a sense, would re-bless the world. And so Abraham's story is a story about moving towards God's blessing, what it means to take God by faith, and having to trust God in his timing of things, not our own. Abraham will have a grandson named Jacob. Now, if you recall, Jacob's a funny guy. 
He knows that God has promised this blessing because God not only told Abraham, but told him. And so Jacob's story is a story of chasing after that blessing. If you recall, he is chasing after God's blessing, but in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong places. And it's not until he realizes that God is the only true source of blessing, that all blessing comes from God. Once Jacob realizes that blessing and that blessing is experienced in that patriarch's life, he will have a son named Joseph. And Joseph's story is a story about being a blessing by extending God's blessing to the world. And if you recall, in retrospect, we know Joseph was God's agent of blessing to the world. When the world was dying and in dire circumstances due to a famine, Joseph's immediate family, his extended family, the future nation of Israel, Egypt, and the scripture says all the earth come to him to be blessed by God. And in a sense, he is the medium of God's blessing to the world. Joseph was God's agent of blessing. And guess what? Who are God's agents of blessing to the world today? The church, Christians. In a very real sense, we are the medium of God's blessing to the world, and that's for a reason, because we are the only people who incarnate the love of Christ, the concern of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ. We are the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ. And you can't disconnect or disassociate what the head is doing from the body. And so in a very real sense, we are the greatest display of Christ to the world. And Christ was the fulfillment of that Abrahamic blessing long ago. And we continue that blessing today. So you, Christian, are God's agent of blessing. Now last week we saw in chapter 37, the beginning of the Joseph saga, how Joseph, God's agent of blessing, was misunderstood by those whom he would bless. But not only was he misunderstood, he was also severely mistreated. And so we learned that as God's agents of blessing, we should not be surprised if we are misunderstood and mistreated by the world we seek to bless. We also saw in that process that God was sovereignly guiding Joseph along his journey and God sovereignly got him where he needed to be in Egypt, where he will be God's agent to save the world. But we didn't see how. He's where he needs to be, but we don't know how he becomes God's agent of blessing. Well, today in chapter 39, we are going to see how he becomes God's agent of blessing. A slide's gonna pop up behind me with our homiletical outline. This will give us handlebars as we navigate through this text. If you got the... Uh, Sermon notes online, if you flip to the very last page, you'll get a little bit of extra information there. Hashtag incentive. Um, and what we're going to see here is God's presence, prosperity, and progress in Joseph's life while he's enslaved. And then we're gonna see God's presence, prosperity, and progress in Joseph's life while he's imprisoned. And nestled in between those two divinely blessed situations, we're going to see Joseph's test 
for purity. And so we're gonna see God's presence, prosperity, and progress. God's presence, prosperity, and progress. And right in between, purity. Verse one. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. This is Joseph's second descent. His first descent was into a pit. And now he's imprisoned. His future hangs in the balance. He seems to be all alone in Egypt. He's 17 years old. He's separated from his family. He's vulnerable without his clan. He is all alone and by himself. Or is he? Notice the number of times the Lord is mentioned while in slavery. Verse two, the Lord. Twice in verse three, the Lord. Twice in verse five, the Lord. Five times the Lord is mentioned while Joseph is in slavery. And it's always in direct association with one person. Not Potiphar, not the Ishmaelites. No, one person, and that's Joseph. It's because Joseph is God's agent of blessing. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse three, his master saw the Lord was with Joseph. God is present with Joseph in his second darkest hour. And what's interesting is it's the narrator that tells us God is present with him. It's not coming from the mouth of Joseph. And the reason why is because it's for the benefit of the reader, you and I, so that we too can know that God is present with us in our darkest hour. There is a Cherokee Indian rite of passage for how a boy becomes a man. The father will take a very, his very young son when he thinks he's ready and they will travel away from the tribe until the territory begins to change. They'll keep traveling until his surroundings are completely unfamiliar to him completely foreign to his eyes, totally unrecognizable to him. We'll call it Egypt. And his father then will take him to the deepest, darkest part of that wood and find a spot to sit him down, maybe on the ground or on the rock or on a stump, and he'll blindfold his son. And he'll tell his son, if you want to become a Cherokee man, if you want to be one day become a Cherokee warrior, you cannot take that blindfold off. You cannot cry out and you cannot leave this station. And when his father leaves, the sun goes down and when the sun comes down, goes down, the night comes to life. And with that, all the foresting creatures begin foraging for food. They're so close he can almost feel them. The wind picks up, it's a bit chilly. And he hears the blades of grass bending and it sounds like a sea of serpents adding to the intensity of the moment. An owl flies over his head. He doesn't know it, but he knows something is over him. He hears the howl of a wolf answered by the howl of another wolf. And worst of all, he hears a sound I hope you never hear in the darkness, the occasional scream of a mountain lion. 
And just when he thinks he cannot bear it any longer, he feels the next morning sun rays upon his face. That was when his dad told him he could take off the blindfold. So when he feels the morning sun rays on his face, what do you think the first thing he'll do will be? He's going to remove the blindfold. And what is the first thing you think he'll see? His father. His dad never left him. His father was with him the entire time in the darkness, protecting him from the predators around him. Even in your darkest hour, when you can't see God, when you can't hear God, when you can't feel God, your God is with you. He is present even in your darkest hour. God is present with his agents of blessing. He is there. And as we'll see with Joseph, God's presence is the reason and cause for all the good things that happened to him. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph, so causation, he became a successful man. Verse three, the Lord, causation, caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Notice, not only did the Lord prosper Joseph, but in verse five, we see the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Notice the scope of divine blessing there. God's blessing is not just on Joseph. God's blessing is not just on those around Joseph, the Egyptian's house, but God's blessing is on creation in the field. This is prior to the Mosaic Covenant. Thus, what we are seeing is the beginning of the promise of the Abrahamic Covenant to restore blessing. Don't miss this through God's agent of blessing, something we continue today. When I first became a believer, all my idols were dramatically highlighted to me. And I remember praying, God, if there's anything more important to me than you, please take that thing away from me. Well, this was just after I had won a national competition and was headed off to uh, Worlds. And what do you think my idol was in my life at that time? That thing I just described. And what do you think the Lord did soon after I prayed that prayer? Let's just say that this was the first time I was introduced to one of our elders prior to my attending Denton Bible Church because he so happened to be a doctor in the emergency room. But it was God who did surgery on my heart. And I learned that day that everything in my life can be taken from me. My health, my talents, my resources, everything in my life can be taken. God forbid, my family, everything but Christ. Christ is the only thing in my life that cannot be taken from me. And so one of my continual prayers has been, God, keep me usable for your kingdom. 
God, help me to remain usable by you. Whatever, whatever things that impede upon my life that keep me from being usable, please take those things away. And so why should we not start investing more into the things we can't lose? Investing in that which you cannot lose is always a win-win. And so invest, start investing in your relationship with Christ. And as you invest more into your relationship with Christ, you will see God progress or progress your influence as an agent of blessing. He will do it. And there's nothing more satisfying in life than being used by God. It doesn't matter what it is. There's nothing more satisfying, more fulfilling than being used by God, being a tool in his hand. Start investing more in your relationship with Christ and watch God progress you in your influence as an agent of his divine blessing to your sphere around you. Well, that was the presence of God. That was the prosperity of God. Now we're going to see the progress of God in Joseph's life. Now in Hebrew, there are things called viactal verbs. And their job is simply often to carry on the narrative of the story. Their purpose in this passage is to show the logical sequence of events as they progress in Joseph's life. So, church experiment, here's what we're gonna do. Every time I say, Vayiktol, I want you to say, aha, aha. No, every time I say, Vayiktol, I want you to think, ah, there's been a progression in Joseph's life. Verse one, Potiphar bought Vayiktol him from the Ishmaelites. So Joseph goes from an item on the shelf to a purchased slave. Verse two, the Lord was with him, so he became a successful man, and he was Vayiktol in the house of his master. So he goes from a menial slave to a slave in the house. Verse four, Joseph found favor in his sight and became Vayiktol, <laughs> his personal servant. So he moves from a slave in the house to a personal attendant. Verse four B, and he made him Vayiktol, overseer of his house and all that he owns. So Joseph moves from personal attendant to manager of the entire estate. Verse six, he left Vayiktol, everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and he did not concern himself with anything. So he moves from manager of the entire estate to manager of all of Potiphar's personal affairs, except for one. So God, we see God progressing his agent of blessing primarily for the purpose of being a blessing to the world around him. Your progress by God is not dependent on your circumstances. He's, in, he's enslaved. Your life belongs to God and he may plant you anywhere he pleases. He may put you in a prison or in palace. That's what Joseph's experience was. Your responsibility is to blossom where you were planted. Your soil 
is where you live and where you work and where you play. You blossom using your time, your talents, and your treasure for the kingdom of God. Your progress is not determined by how high you climb or by what you accumulate. You progress by blossoming where you are planted. If God plants you somewhere for a week, take root and blossom there. If God plants you somewhere for a month, take root and blossom there for a month. If God plants you somewhere for a year or however long, take root and blossom there for however long you're there, using your time, your talents, and your treasure wherever you live, work, and play. That is how God will grow you and progress you as his agent of blessing. Now, between Joseph's time in enslavement, which was blessed by God, and his time in imprisonment, which we'll also see is divinely blessed by God, is the testing by Potiphar's wife. This will indicate whether or not Joseph stays cocooned within God's blessing. And this is where we find ourselves tested every single day. Stationed between his enslavement and his imprisonment is the sexual proposition of Potiphar's wife. And in verse six, we're kind of, we're given this ominous statement where it describes Joseph's looks. Now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. Now back in verse four, Joseph found favor in the eyes of his master. Later in verse 21, Joseph will find favor in the eyes of his jailer. Here in verse seven, Potiphar's wife lifts her eyes towards Joseph. Apparently he caught her eye too. Verse seven, It came about after these events. What events? God's blessing upon Joseph and all those in Potiphar's house. That his master's wife, and the Hebrew literally says, lifted her eyes with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. He's a teenager. He's 17 years old. And this test, this temptation, was not a one-time, a one-off test. Verse 10, she spoke to Joseph day after day for him to lie with her. And there's a progression here too. The verbal temptation becomes a physical temptation. In verse 12, she caught him by his garments saying, lie with me. Joseph, nobody's home, no one will ever know. You know you want to, young man. Lie with me, Joseph, why not? This predatorial vixen puts persistent pressure on this teenager. Will he undermine his usability? Will he compromise his blessed situation? How will Joseph respond? Verse eight, he refused. Joseph stands his ground 
and then protests by restating all the ways that God has blessed him and Potiphar's house. Verse eight, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all things he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing except you, because you are his wife. Now, earlier in verse four, we saw that God helped Joseph to succeed in whatever he does. It's the verb asaw. But there are some things Joseph just must refuse to do. How then could I asaw? Do this great evil and sin against God. Divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility to do what is right. One's sin has an effect on one's relationship with God. We're not talking salvifically here. That connection from you to heaven is made. But sin clogs the pipe. God's hand of blessing will be withdrawn. And the reason why Joseph restates his blessed situation is because he knows that if he gives in to the sin, he'll be moved out of the blessing. That is why we see that there's a chiasm in the structure. He is sandwiched by divine blessing on either side. And in between is the testing. If he wants to go from here to there, he's gotta do something in the middle. It's a literary tool that reveals its primary thrust. Joseph not only refuses to lie with her, he refuses to listen to her her in verse 10 and to even be in her presence. Despite his protest, For purity, this predator catches him in verse 12. But Joseph escapes, but not without leaving his garment in her hand. She'll take that garment, she'll twist the story, she'll put it beside her, change the order of events, and tell Potiphar, her husband, that this Hebrew slave tried to rape her. Potiphar's anger will will burn with anger and he will put Joseph in prison. But his integrity remains intact. A few years ago in seminary, Chuck Swindoll was talking to us in chapel and he said, if you're going to be a preacher, you're probably going to do some speaking engagements. And if you're doing speaking engagements, you're probably going to be doing some traveling. And if you're doing some traveling, you're probably going to be doing it from time to time alone. And he tells a story about how he had just finished speaking and he was getting on the elevator. And as the elevator doors were about to shut, ding, they opened back up. And two stunningly gorgeous women come in and stand on his right and on his left. And the door closes and 
The one closest to the buttons doesn't push anything, and he says, what floor, ladies? And one says, which floor are you going on? He goes, I'm going on six. And she says, six is good for us, too. And as he goes up two, three, four, five, he begins to realize what's going on. And the doors open, and he takes a small step forward and then says, ladies first. And they, both of them step out, and he steps back in. He says, no thanks. I remember reading a story about Billy Graham and how he would always travel with a ministry partner. And one time while in Paris, they were doing a speaking engagement in the early 1950s. And for, for some reason, one left the room for a while and the other was in the room. And he recalls being overwhelmed with the temptation to go out and discover the lustful nature of Paris himself. And at that, he had one of those skeleton keys where you can lock the door from the inside. So he locks the door from the inside and throws the key out the window. Sometimes you just gotta get rid of the temptation. With Swindoll, sometimes you just gotta be keen to your surroundings. Sometimes you just gotta get rid of the temptation. Sometimes you've got to get the software on your phone. Sometimes you've got to cut the laptop core, the power supply. Sometimes you've got to just get rid of it altogether. I remember reading a story by Tony Evans and he's telling a story about two men having a conversation. One of these men was an evangelist telling the other man about this conference he just did. And he, this guy also was getting on the elevator and he was, he was on the elevator and he, there was a lady on there and she had, uh, the, her luggage was covering the floor of the elevator and there was no bellboy to help her. And so he volunteered to help her carry her luggage to her room, to her door. And so she accepts, and so he carries, she grabs her luggage, he, got, he grabs her luggage, and they go, they walk down the hall, they reach her door, and he says, have a good evening, and puts her luggage down, and then she swings open the doors and, door and says, won't you come in? Now, he was a married man. And the guy he's telling, the, telling this story interrupts and said, but you obeyed God's word to flee sexual immorality out of fear of God. And he said, no, I obeyed God's word to flee sexual immorality out of fear for my wife. <laughs> Sometimes we just have to be afraid of the consequences of our sin. We don't know the consequences always, but we know that much damage has been done. And so Joseph maintains his integrity and remains nestled between God's blessing. However, Joseph's integrity does not give him divine immunity from suffering. He is now in prison. This is his third and final descent before, before his ascension in Egypt. But we will see a repeat. We're gonna see God's presence, God's prosperity, and God's progress of, in Joseph's life while imprisoned, but this time to a greater degree than before. Three times the Lord is mentioned here, and it's all in association with one person. It's not gonna be in association with the jailer. 
It's not going to be in association with the prisoners. It's always in association with Joseph. Why? Because he is God's agent of blessing. In verse 21 and in verse 23, we see the Lord was with Joseph. So everywhere Joseph goes, God is present with him. However, in verse 21, we see something different. Something that wasn't described or mentioned earlier. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Now the word kindness there is the word hesed and it's often translated loyal love. This wasn't mentioned earlier. There has now, Joseph is now experiencing a greater degree of God's presence by experiencing a greater dimension of God's love while in prison. If you are experiencing God's love in any situation, you can be in any situation. You can handle any situation. He is experiencing God's love in a way he didn't before. And now observe the progress in verse 22. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was also responsible for it. The chief jailer did not surprise him and the Hebrew says, did not supervise all of anything under Joseph's care. If you recall, one thing was withheld from Joseph while enslavement. Now nothing is withheld from Joseph while in prison. There has been a progression in the usability of this agent of God's blessing. And then listen to the number of, the, number of instances the word all is employed. Verse three, all. Verse four, all. Twice in verse five, all. Verse six, all. Verse eight, all. Twice in verse 22, all. And again in verse 23, all. This, all this is an all-encompassing indication of the nature of God's blessing upon all that Joseph is doing. And look at the location of Joseph in verse 20. He is where the king's prisoners were confined. He is now closer to Pharaoh. In hindsight, we know what will happen while he's in prison. He is in immediate, he's in immediate connection with those who are, have an immediate connection with Pharaoh. He is one person away. It's because he is in prison that he will be in the presence of of Pharaoh later on. And so we see a progression of Jacob's or Joseph's location. So we see God is with him, his presence. We see God is blessing him, his prosperity. And God is making him a greater agent of blessing to the world around him. As Chris Cobble in our missions department often says, with God, one plus one often equals three. God is with this man. So let's put it all together, shall we? While enslaved, did God bless Joseph and bless those around him? Yes, he did. And by the way, you can shake your head, yeah? Yeah, he did. While in prison, or while enslaved, did God bless him? Yes, he did. While imprisoned, 
Did God bless Joseph and bless those around him? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. So does my location, my circumstance, or my station in life matter in regard to my usability by God? No, it does not. But what does matter? Nestled in between God's blessing and enslavement and God's blessing and imprisonment was the test of Joseph's integrity. It was his integrity that enabled him to remain in God's blessing. Jude says, in the book of Jude we read, he tells the church, he says, remain in the love of God. The implication is you can do things to take yourself out of the experience of God's love. God doesn't love you anymore. God loves you totally and completely. But we can do things, in a sense, that take us out of the experience of God's blessing. Jesus tells his disciples, he who hears my words, or he who has my commandments and keeps them, is the one who I will disclose myself to. In other words, there is blessing to obedience. Paul will write to the Ephesians, in the domestic household codes, referring to children, calling them to obey their parents so that it will be well with them in this life. Blessing to obedience. Jesus says in Mark chapter 13 that all those who abandon everything to follow Jesus will experience a hundred times more in this life. And so it was Joseph's integrity in the time of testing that allowed him to remain usable by God. He stayed cocooned within that blessing. And so we as Christians must also seek to remain people of integrity as we are used by God to be his agents of blessing. Sexuality is one of the most powerful forces of nature. And it seems that our culture has virtually eroticized every aspect and arena of our existence. We can't seem to escape it. And so it is all the more important that we be people not just of sexual integrity, but integrity in general. That is something that we must pursue everywhere all the time. In 1147, St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, Austria was completed nearly a thousand years ago. And every day since its completion, it has been in the continual process of preservation and maintenance. It has nine full-time stonemasons that do maintenance on one location and then work around the, bu the building. And by the time they get around to where they started, guess what? It's time to begin again. This process has continued for nearly a millennium. And the reason why is because the material that makes the building so beautiful will disintegrate into something less than what it's meant to be unless its, its integrity is maintained. Every day, all the time. Its integrity must be maintained. Likewise, to be what God wants us to be, we, agents of blessing, 
need to seek to pursue maintaining integrity every day, all the time. That is what enables the Christian to be an agent of blessing, according to this passage. It's one facet of divine enablement that allows us to be agents of blessing to the world. So while the world runs out, and after being the biggest and the fastest and the strongest, the best looking and the most intelligent, the most influential, as the primary means of enablement and getting ahead in life, what enables the Christian to be used by God as his agent of divine blessing is godly integrity. Now, we have all failed to maintain perfect integrity, but Christ is not. And I am so thankful for the grace of God that I am forgiven for my many failures at maintaining integrity. In Christ, I can move past my past and pursue integrity. Now, I know me, and I know I will fail in the future at maintaining perfect integrity. I know where I come from, I know the sins I've committed, and so in, in one element, I am so grateful that I've been washed clean by the blood. But I also know that challenging, head, challenging days lie ahead and that I won't maintain perfect integrity in every arena of life. But when I do fail, I must confess my failure and then begin to pursue integrity again. We have all failed to maintain perfect integrity, but Christ has not. And guess what, God's got his own maintenance project going on too. It's making you look like his son. That is what God is doing when he deposited his spirit in you so that his Holy Spirit will produce the attributes of Christ in you as you seek to align your life to the word of God. He not only started something, he's not only doing something now, but he's gonna see its completion. And one of our roles as the people of God is to yield our lives to the work of God. And for me, preaching is primarily about life change into greater Christ-likeness. I believe that's why God gave us his word. Because Christ, the word of God, is the only one who has perfectly maintained the word of God in every arena of life. And scripture tells us throughout that this is what God is doing in our lives. He's making us look like his son. It's the process of sanctification. And so this is what I view preaching to be. And so one of my tasks is always trying to help God's people remember God's word and align their lives to the theology of God's word. And sometimes this happens at the risk of being really corny. Disclaimer. Now I'm gonna ask you a question and please give me a show of hands. It's a very light question, it's a very easy question. But show of hands, how many here had pie this past Thursday? Don't lie, raise your hands. Some of you had pie this morning. 
still under your fingernails. And for some of you, pie was an answer to prayer, amen? Well, I'm still praying for pie. P, pursue, I, integrity, E, everywhere. Pray to pursue integrity everywhere. I wanna challenge you men, I wanna call you up in the church that as you go out this Monday and don't come back until this next Sunday, that you all take it upon yourselves as a man of God and as a leader in your society to display integrity unlike the world. And one way this is going to happen is through prayer. And so as you are on your way to work, as you're going about your day and the temptation comes, when the thought crosses your mind, when that wow becomes a how, Pray to pursue integrity everywhere. Ladies, I wanna call you up too. I want you every single day this week to pray to pursue integrity everywhere. When you feel your integrity being challenged, remember pie. Imagine us being the people of God all seeking to align our lives to the word of God and the power God provides as one body of Christ seeking to apply God's word in the same way. And so may we be a people who pray to pursue integrity everywhere from Monday to next Sunday. And then we'll take on a different application. Amen? Y'all are hungry. <laughs> Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus in whom is life, in whom is wisdom, love, forgiveness, grace. All the good and wonderful blessings are all tied up into our King and our Savior. I thank you that he maintained perfect integrity on my behalf. And as your word tells us that you are making us look and be and sound like him as his disciples, I pray that we would be people who pray to pursue integrity everywhere this week. And I pray it just becomes one of those things that is attached to us. I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would recall our minds and attention to this truth. May we be agents of blessing, enabled by you, as we pray to pursue integrity everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.